You're listening to the CPR of Life podcast, a show about creating community through connection, awakening potential, and uncovering the resilience of the human spirit through an understanding of state of mind. It's about living a life well-lived and uncovering what often gets in the way. Welcome to episode number 25. This month, I am traveling the world vicariously through my guests. Last week, I spoke to Dan in Bordeaux, France. And today, I'm jet-setting to Israel to chat with author, coach, and speaker, Hannah Studley. Hannah and I are taking a course on mind, brain, and body together. We haven't had the opportunity to talk very much, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Hannah's a really interesting individual. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Hana. I'm very happy to have you with me today. Hi, Jessie Lane. It's so a pr- privilege to be here. Thank you. Um, we hadn't met prior to being on uh, Dr. Pettit's course, but I had bought your book prior to that. So do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about who is Hana? Thank you. Um, so I think the best place to start is kind of where my book starts, which is um, I grew up in England and um, I experienced three very violent attacks in in England, in Manchester, where I where I was at university. And the second one put me into a really, really bad place. Um, so I decided that, you know, Manchester was clearly the problem and I should move to London. <laughs> and then I moved down to London and I got mugged again. And um, this really sent me over the edge. And I, I came to this place where my mind was so on fire with overthinking and analyzing and confusion and pain that I remember this one particular day where I was pinned against my bedroom wall in absolute terror and suddenly it went quiet. And the best way I can explain that is, you know, like uh, if you ever used a hairdryer and it gets too hot and it just cuts out, Uh it's almost like that's what my brain did. Uh And my brain just cut out and it was, kind of scary because it'd been like, imagine all this cacophony of noise, all the, the, the trauma and, and the overthinking and the, and the pain, and suddenly it went absolutely quiet. And actually it was, um, I had a call with Dr. Pettit actually, and we were talking about it. And he kind of explained to me that it was like, it was my, it was like my brain's way of coping was just to switch off. You know, the pain got so bad that I, I, it just switched off. And so the rest of, from, from that day till now, and hopefully continuing, um, I've been on this journey of, of learning and understanding how human experience works. And I've gone through like an evolution of, of that, of trying different things, different, um, different approaches, different techniques. And, and, and thank God I came across the principles about um, four years ago now. And, and it's really, um, I remember saying to uh, Charles Rosenblatt, who was one of the first principles teachers I spoke to, and I said to him, it's like I've discovered a vocabulary to explain all the ideas I've had up to now. Like, I knew it was my thoughts. I knew I wasn't my thoughts. That's just, but that's as far as I'd got on my own, with my own, like, searching and, and discoveries. Um, and so, like, understanding now that that's how we all experience life, it's like it just kind of like put put the put the finishing touch on on understanding how how we operate. So so when so you went through two you went through two muggings, three actually. 
Oh, yeah. Three. My book is, is a novel. It's, it's really a story about a girl called Deborah. But once you know me, it's, you'll kind of notice that there's about 85% of it is actually true. Right. And that she did happen. So the muggings, um, the first one was um, my skull was fractured in a nightclub in, when I was in college. Um, it was like broken right here. I, I know you can't see it, but I, I know there's a lump there. <laughs> and yeah. um, and so um, I recovered quite quickly from that because everybody was like, oh, well, that's, you know, kind of things that happen when you're a student, you're in a concert. You know, I, I, I was, it was actually a sexual assault. Someone was trying to dance with me and I didn't want him. I pushed him away and he smashed my head into a concrete pillar and fractured my skull. And, um, but I recovered from that one pretty quickly. And the second one was uh, three men uh, ran up from behind and jumped me and uh, dragged me to the ground and beat the living daylights out of me. Um, and that one was pretty terrifying. I mean, I actually had an out-of-body experience with that one. I really thought I was going to die. I could feel the breath running out of my lungs. Wow. I, I knew I could feel the breath running out of my lungs. And I thought, if I can't catch another breath, I'm going to die. Like, if they have a knife, I'm going to die. And um, I had a really, really interesting experience with that in that for the first 10 years after that experience, I... I remembered it as if I was about 20, 30 feet up in the air, looking down, watching what? my body being beaten. Wow. What was that like to, to experience that? Um, it was almost peaceful. It's a very strange thing to say because obviously it was like terrifying. And I was almost like a cat up a tree looking at something I don't understand. Mm. You know, it was like, like this. And the mugging probably only lasted, what, two, three minutes, but it felt very slow and like, duh, 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 duh. okay. And then for the next 10 years after this experience, I started remembering it as if I was deep inside of myself. Like I, I describe it in the book as if, um, imagine a, a beach ball filled with air. Imagine being right in the center of that air so it's like my body was being pounded from the outside, like a tree in a, in a very strong wind. But I was deep inside and I knew I couldn't be hurt. Wow. And then I realized that both were actually happening at the same time, which is a bit trippy. <laughs> but it's like... <laughs> actually, yeah. you said that. And, and that's when I started getting that, you know, time is not linear. And how we experience life, you know being in the moment is the best way to experience life because otherwise it's pretty trippy out there when you start like going off into the future and the past and, and trying to make sense of that. And so, um, and now it's like, depend, I don't know, different times I think about it. Sometimes I remember being like held inside my body as, and, and it just being pounded, but I couldn't be hurt. Other times I remember being watching it, but I also have this memory of being terrified and thinking if I can't catch a breath, I'm going to die. So that whole that whole experience went into um, you know, very traumatic because it was about 1980, the early, early 1980s when this happened. And PTSD was only just going into the DSM at that time. And I, I lived in Manchester and, you know, they, nobody's talking about therapy even, let alone, you know, those kind of diagnoses. Yeah. So all I got was a cup of tea and, and, a, and a taxi home afterwards. Wow. And, yeah. And so I just went home and, and got, quite strange, quite, to be quite honest. I, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. 
Um, and I, I really, um, I really got messed up. I can remember, I can remember coming to one time and I it said six o'clock on my, on my clock. And I thought, and I couldn't work out if it was six o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the evening, I'd lost it that much. So I kind of got myself together after about um, a year of this, of, of living in this kind of twilight zone of being terrified to go out. Was that and after the first or second time? After the second time. Okay. And, and, and not being able to tell anybody either. Because I'd actually trained as a counsellor in between the two attacks. I'd trained as a counsellor um, at Manchester Women Crisis Centre. And, um, and I think there was some kind of story in my head that because I was a counsellor, I should be able to cope. Because hmm. for a long time, I couldn't work out why I didn't ask for help. <laughs> you know, I just sat at home and suffered on my own. And, um, and then I decided I should move. Like I said, I moved down to London. And then, um, then I was attacked by a six-year-old kid who threw a bicycle at me and, uh, and actually broke my neck. Um, I mean, thank God the spinal cord wasn't touched, but the, well, it's probably bruised, but um, the, the, the C2 and C3, the top vertebrae were cracked. Yeah. And, um, and so after that, I was just terrified to leave the house because I knew that if I go out my front door, I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to die soon if it keeps on like this. Yeah. And I, I got pretty loopy. Um, because I had the evidence. You couldn't blame me for like going crazy now because I had the x-rays, I had the police reports, you know, I, ha I had the proof that if I leave my house, the bus is going to run me over. And, and so, so that's why my brain got, I think, just overheated because the story that was going round and round in my head had become true. Mm. I believed it. I was believing my thoughts. I was taking them seriously and I believed it. And, and, it, and so my world shrank to like about two feet around me. And you were still living in London? At, at yeah, so, so that was in London, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, that was terrifying. And, and just to see the power of thought, like when you, that innocent misunderstanding of, of, of believing those thoughts um, affected me physically and emotionally and, and, and my career and everything just kind of like caved in. It was, it was pretty sad. Did you continue working as a counselor after all that? Um, yeah, but it, it's, it's a, I've, I have continued. And so after that point, when I actually started getting well, I actually went to a, a crisis center in London and they, they really helped me. And, and the first thing they said to me is like, okay, you have been thinking about yourself for too much for too long. We need to get you helping other people. And, and how that, long was it from, like, from the point of the attack that you went to the crisis center? You know, I don't exactly know because it's, it was, first of all, it was 30 years ago. And, oh. um, and, uh, and, and it's a bit, it was a bit of a blur at the time. I was losing track of days at the time. You know, I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't put it, piece it together even a couple of years after the, after the event. Um, I think probably six months. Maybe six months I lived in that kind of place where I was terrified. You know, I remember the thought of going in the London Underground. I knew someone would push me in front of a train. So I, the thought of going down the steps into a station was just like, it's not going to happen. So then I, and at the end, I couldn't even leave the house. Um, so I, I did actually, with the help of a friend, get to this crisis centre and, and they, started, um, they started me back on the path of recovery. And so I started helping people. And at the same time, I, my, I started my career. Um, I, it's almost like I've had <clears throat> excuse me, two, two careers. One has been the coaching, the counseling, and the other one has been working in the entertainment business. Now, so, how did that come about? <laughs> there's, there's, there's such a difference between the two. 
Yeah. So um, I've always been creative. Um, you know, I, I did an arts degree and um, I'd always made things with my hands. And so I, I walked into the local um, community arts theatre and I wanted to do props and costumes, that kind of stuff. I've always been someone who wants to work behind the scenes. And so I, I started um, making those uh, like costumes for, for theatre. And it's it really, looking back, it really was who you know and being in the right place at the right time because quite, qu- quite quickly I went from like the local community arts theatre to working for the National Theatre and the BBC and Les Miserables and the Opera House and Royal Shakespeare Company. And I was doing, having this amazing time. And in between um, jobs, I would do the, the, the coaching and the counselling work with people. So um, I was actually working on a project, a, a Motorola commercial. And um, I met a woman who had um, worked on several movies. She'd uh, um, worked on all the Jim Henson movies. I don't know, you know Jim Henson uh, makes Kermit, Miss Piggy, oh, you know, he yeah. met him. Right. So, um, so he, uh, Jim Henson had a, a workshop in London where they did special effects for other movies, not just pup, uh, Muppet stuff, but and Sesame Street, but the, like just anybody's movie who needs special effects. So I, um, I was hired there through this, through this amazing lady and, um, and I started working on my first movie. And so I then had like a 20 year career doing special effects in movies, which was absolutely amazing. Um, took me all over the world and met the most amazing people. And in between movies, you often get two or three months off, um, especially my work because my work was so specialized. Yeah. And so in those two or three months off, I'd, I'd go and do more co- coaching and counseling type work. So I, I kind of kept the two going for a long time. Yeah. So I'm going to circle back here. First, so in order for my second question, I have to ask the first one. When you talk <laughs> about the principles, what do you mean by the principles? So when I, when I came across the three principles, it was actually um, a friend of mine from Los Angeles. Um, I now live in, in Jerusalem in Israel. And a friend of mine from LA was visiting and um, we were having coffee and she said, oh, I went to this amazing workshop um, uh, a couple of days ago. And I said, oh, really? What was that? And, she's, and she goes, um, well... <laughs> She's like, we've been talking for like two hours straight, and then suddenly she was lost for words. And I was like, "Well, how great was it if you can't explain it?" You know, it left her speechless. Right? Yeah. And I was like, "I was like, what was it?" And she's like, "Well, I said, well, because I had no clue at this point." I said, "Is it a diet? Is it a, you know, is it an exercise program? Is it?" She's like, "No, no, no." I said, "Well, give me a clue." And and so then she just kind of said a few sentences, like it was a new understanding of how how we experience life, how we experience the world through our thoughts and through, you know, you have to be conscious, aware, have some kind of awareness to experience those thoughts. And, and she told me that mind was the source of everything. And, and then she wrote um, three words on a napkin. She wrote Sydney Banks and then mind, thought and consciousness on this napkin and pushed it across the table to me. She said, go look it up. <laughs> So I did. I, I went home and I, I got on the computer and I, I, I put Sydney Banks into YouTube. And there was this video of this amazingly beautiful, calm, serene man with this lovely Scottish accent. <laughs> and um, and I, that's when I had this moment of like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for. Because in, in this 20 years when I was doing the movies and, and co- co- coaching in between, um, I kind of like, I, like I said, I tried lots of other approaches, 
But what I see now is all those other techniques and methods, um, like I became a certified life coach and, you know, like lots of techniques were thrown at me in that course. Um, in all those other areas, I see how they want to change the thinking. They're focusing on the content of the thinking and how to change it. And what I love about the principles is that they're pointing to something completely different in that you don't have to change the thinking. It's more about understanding that you're thinking. Right. Right. The fact that I'm thinking and I'm the one doing the thinking in this, depending on my level of consciousness, that's what's giving me the experience that I think I'm I'm blaming on my boss or my neighbor or my, you know, whoever. Manchester. (laughs) Manchester or (laughs) the weather, you know, it could be anything. (laughs) So now, okay, so here's my second question because I I wondered how you would put working in special effects. in the theater, yeah, you see a correlation with kind of special effects in life, and how would you explain that? Absolutely, I'm so glad you said that because. <laughs> <clears throat> so when I first came across the principles, like I said, I, I would go. I went to. I started watching YouTube videos, and I heard a few teachers, and I noticed that they would always say, "They give the same example." They would say, "Imagine a lion walked in the room. You know, you'd be terrified." And I was like. Um, I made a lion for George of the Jungle. <laughs> and I, when I say made, um, I should explain, I, I worked in animatronics. Animatronics are very sophisticated puppets. Hmm. And my, my whole career was um, based on me making the co- copies of real animals. So if a film, a, a story had a real animal and it had to talk or get run over by a truck, let's say, something that animals can't do or are not allowed to do, then we'd make a copy of exactly that animal, that dog, that elephant, that bird, whatever it was, and then they'd cut from my puppet to the real animal and you won't know the difference. Mm. So I'd made a line for George of the Jungle and I taught um, Brendan Fraser how to fight with my puppet to make it look real. And, and then the three principles teacher would usually say like, and then you realize it's a puppet. And you're like, <laughs> so the experience is completely different. And yet it's the same thing. You know, like you could have a different experience right. if you think it's real or if you think it's a puppet. So then the next teacher would say, oh, imagine a tiger walked into the room. I was like, um, I made a tiger <laughs> for Dr. Doolittle with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> and they really thought it was real. Um, one of the highlights of my career uh, was um, when, when you're filming, every day you have to watch um, the footage of what you shot the day before. It's called dailies. So the director, the producer, the, you know, the, the heads of department will sit in a, a little movie theater that's built specially for this. And so when my puppets were in, in the shots, I would go also. Because what we're looking for is to make sure there's no mistakes because it would cost a fortune to bring everybody back at the end of the movie when they start you know, editing. So we always watch the footage the next day while we're eating lunch. And this particular day, they'd been filming my tiger, my puppet, and uh, the director had invited some big, I don't know, Hollywood, big like producer type person to come and visit and watch our work. And they were sat in the front row in front of me and, and the producer and the other people. And the, the visitor says, see, this is the problem. When you work with real animals, they're always looking at their trainer, which is true, right? The animal is always looking slightly off camera. They're looking at the trainer who's got the noise or the garlic chicken or whatever it is they're like trying to get the animal to behave and react to. And they were talking about my puppet. And I, we were like, yes! yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
job done, <laughs> you know, because the whole point of special effects or visual effects is what I was doing is to fool you that something is real yeah. that isn't. So when I'm, when I'm describing this to when I'm working with people, I would say like, that's what my mind does all the time. Right. My mind is always trying to convince me something is real that isn't, you know, it's, it's an illusion. And, and special effects are such a great analogy for that because um, like when, when I, when my, the big movie I worked on, we got actually got an Academy Award. And I, when I tell people that they go, it, it was for the movie Babe. I don't know if you remember the movie Babe yeah. with the talking pig, right? Yeah. And so I tell people I, I made the dogs. When I say I, I mean, it takes a huge team of people to do these things. But, yeah. and people say to me, there's no dog, there's no puppets in that movie. And I'm like, well, does your dog talk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they'll say, oh, it was computers. I'm like, no, it was 1994. The computers weren't doing that kind of work then. It was puppets. And you fell for it. And I'm really pleased because, you know, that was our job, was to convince yeah. you it was real. That dogs can talk. That, you know, like gorillas can play poker and cats can drive cars. You know, <laughs> that's what we did. And so when, I, when I'm explaining to people about how the mind works, it's such a great analogy to see that... Um, that my thinking, depending on my level of consciousness, is going to convince me that that you know that, that my hurt feelings are, are are your fault. They're coming from you know that person who who like you know I know did something that is I I want to blame them for how I'm feeling, and and because like when I had you know after my muggings when when those guys all beat me up, I had evidence. You couldn't blame me for it for blaming them or the police who didn't treat me right, you know, um, afterwards and all the other people I wanted to blame. But what I saw was that, um, the actual event had finished and I was just reliving and reliving the conversations and the experiences over and over again. So that when I'm working with someone in that kind of situation, I want to help them see that in this moment right here, right now, you're actually safe. You're actually okay. It's just the, the memories that you're reliving that are causing you this discomfort. Mm -hmm. So do they, do they like, so do they see that? Cause that, sometimes that's a hard thing for people to grasp. <clears throat> Especially yeah. people who've suffered severe trauma. They... Right. Yeah. It, it's, it can be hard. And so I would, I would be very gentle, you know, if I was explaining this to someone who's, you know, in, in a, but I've, I've also had, Amazing experiences. Like I had a lady come to me um, about a month or so ago and she it, it intuitively came to me not to ask her what the trauma actually was. Mm. Because um, like I've, I've done a, quite a bit of training with, with trauma and, and um, Israel actually is one of the first countries in the world to have a psychotrauma unit attached to our first responders. Oh. So I'm about, yeah, it's an amazing idea. I mean, like... <clears throat> Duh, why didn't anybody, why didn't we think of this before? Yeah. So here, when, or has this always been? Um, it's been going about two years. So I was one of the first people to get trained. And so what happens if someone calls like 911 or, you know, here it's a different number, but um, calls the emergency number. And, and, and so the call center are working out, do they, you know, sending paramedics or the police, you know, fire department, whoever needs to go. They will also assess if they need to send someone from our unit. It's called the Psychotrauma and Crisis Unit. Mm -hmm. And so um, because witnesses, people involved in, in the emergency can be traumatized. 
Now, can you imagine them like doing CPR on your baby? The parents are going to be traumatized watching that. Or if you witness a car accident or you were the one who caused the accident, or it could also be the other first responders, like a policeman seeing his buddy, you know, being attacked or, you know, a soldier being stabbed. You know, we we have, unfortunately have a a lot of trauma here. And so, excuse me. So it's like, what we do, one of the first things I was taught in my training was that if someone is stabilized in the moment, they are 80% less chance of getting PTSD afterwards. Now, we'll set aside what the label PTSD for a moment, but it makes, from a principal's point of view, it makes perfect sense because bring someone to the moment where they are okay, you know, that they're, they're, they're not damaged, that they're, they're going to help them be in the moment then that it's going to help them not get into that loop of reliving and reliving the thoughts like what happened, which is what happened to me after my, my attacks. This brings me, that just triggered for me was, do you know in Bill's course when he had that, when he shared that story about um, someone who had been injured mm-hmm. and the nurse said to them, <clears throat> yeah, you know, the, the injuries happened. I can't remember the details of it. And now your body's starting to heal. I just thought right. that was amazing. Yeah. So that because that's the that's the resilience like that in that story um, just to let the people know it's it was about a I think a car accident and and the one of the people close by was a, a nurse I think and she was a, she went straight to the person who was injured and said now you're you're already starting to get well you're already recovering because it's over <clears throat> and that's what we were trained to do is to help people come back to the moment and 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 tap into their their natural resilience. In fact, the organization I, I belong to is called Hadzala. In Hebrew, that, that, in English, that means rescue wow. and, or help. <clears throat> and and my, my position is called a chosen. And a chosen, <clears throat> excuse me, I might, my, I've got allergies. <laughs> my, um, the translation of chosen is resilience. I was like, oh. when, when I heard that in class, I was like, yes. <laughs> 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 That's what we're doing. We're helping people see their own resilience so that they don't have to go home and suffer. Interesting. It's incredible. That's so now awesome. other countries around the world are being asked to, um, you know, have us come and teach them and, and uh, you know, this, this uh, trauma unit. It's, it's quite incredible. Yeah. So this is a long answer to your question. How, how do I help someone, you know, <laughs> come, come like to see this. So this woman who had come to me, it, it, it intuitively came to me not to ask her the details, the content of her, of the trauma. And so we sat for about two hours, excuse me, and for about two hours, I explained the principles and I explained consciousness and I I really went went through this, like helped to, like an introduction to this understanding. And the next morning she messaged me and she said, thank you so much for not asking me about what happened. She said, psychiatrists and therapists have been torturing me for 10 years. I, I, I guessed it was a rape. I wasn't entirely sure, but she said for 10 years, they'd be making her write about it, you know, talk it out again, turn it into a drama and then talk about it again and then write about it again over and over. And she, it's like, she said, they've been like torturing me with this for 10 years. She said, thank you so much for not asking me to talk about it. 
and so then we just went on and she's and you know within because you know how I, I've, like you, I'm sure you've heard like Bill Pettit tell these amazing stories about how people come out of you know schizophrenia in like two minutes when he tells them about the principles and you think now that can never happen yeah I saw it happen this woman in, in like the space of like 24 hours was at peace with what had happened to her it was like it was such a privilege to to be part of that and see someone you know get get free and get well do you share your story because so some people might say well you just you don't really understand trauma or you you know you don't really understand so do you share your experience or do you yeah yeah absolutely because um because I, I think, yeah, it is helpful for them to see that I got well. I mean, in fact, this lady said to me that was one of the, the things that helped her was when she went to bed that night, she said, she kept saying to herself, if Hannah got well and she went through that, then, then maybe I can too. And, and I've, when I talk about it, when I'm, when I'm speaking, like I was, um, I, I was at the One Solution conference. I spoke you know, with Mara Gleason. Um, they had the conference here in, in Jerusalem this year. And I told my story because I was on a panel about, it was called Reimagining Fear. So there was three of us and we all talked about how we'd each, like we're having a new experience with fear. And people came up to me afterwards after I told my story and they go like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I'm like, it was 30 years ago and I'm fine. <laughs> and like, I think people get shocked that I can talk about it so freely and so neutrally mm. because I think, we're kind of told that, you know, if you go through something like that, you're going to be damaged. You're going to have to be dealing with it for the rest of your life. And, and, and I think that's how traditional therapies, you know, like approach it and how you like, you see it in movies and on TV shows that, you know, people having to deal with it again and again, that I think people are a little surprised sometimes when I talk about it so freely. And so I know comfortably as if I'm just telling you about one of my movies I worked on. It was, (laughs) you know, it, it really did happen. I can tell you in gory details about what happened, but it's not happening now. It's not who I am. For the longest time, my story was who I am. You know, I was the victim. I was the girl who got mugged three times. I was the, you know, I had my neck broken. I could, I could, you know, I used to um, have a joke with a friend, like we used to get into competitive tragedy. You know, I could up your tragedy, you know, (laughs) because like people say, oh, I was in a car accident. I'd like, you know, honey, my neck was broken. <laughs> so, I could usually top most people with that one. Um, and I, you know, and so when I first came across <clears throat> a mentor who was asking me to let go of my story, that was very threatening because it become who it become me. Hmm. And the thought of letting go of my story was was like, well, who am I going to be then if I let go of this story? And yeah. it was quite a, um, a kind of a a scary transition to go from that person of, you know, when, when usually when you meet someone, you like talk about, you know, what you do for a living. And I'm, I would always get into the conversation that, um, you know, I'd been mugged. <laughs> <'Cause> it, <laughs> I don't know. I am Hannah and I've been mugged. <laughs> right. I mean, because if it was a girl, I could impress you with how like courageous I was and how much I coped and, and how well I was doing. And if it was a guy, I'd get him to feel sorry for me. And he, you know, I mean, I was a total manipulator. And, and I, so it was, in fact, I didn't wear earrings for a very long time because the night I got mugged, um, I, I used to wear massive big, big earrings. And, and the night I got mugged, I wasn't wearing any. And if I had been, the, they, they would have ripped my ears to pieces because I was kicked in the head many times. And so people often would say to me for a couple of years, like, oh, you never wear earrings. I'm like, oh, well, that's because I was mugged. 
You know, I knew how to get it. <laughs> I was the conversation. Right. I was the queen of manipulating you. It's great outside. Right. <laughs> right. And because I had this story that if I, if I let go of this, this story that I've created, that I'm this victim and I'm, or I, I'm either courageous or, you know, or a victim, then what else am I going to talk about? You might not like me if I don't have something juicy and interesting to talk about. And um, my, my book, I, I, it's called The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. And maybe we, I mean, this is a sneaky segue into talking well, about I'm how coming, I came up. It's coming, so good for you. Okay. <laughs> no, because it just came in my head. Why did I come up with that title? Because when I moved to California, um, you know, I was very English and very fresh off the boat. And, and I, I would hear all these people talking about their low self-esteem. And to be honest, I'd never come across a bunch of more self-centered, self-possessed, self-obsessed people in my life. Right? You're and, like, you're what? <laughs> and they're talking about their self-esteem in front of groups of people. And I'm like, that's not low self-esteem. And I was explaining this to someone the other day, and he said to me, well, what is self-esteem and where does it come from? And I remembering back at that time, when I was working on a movie, you know, and, and say like I went out in the evening and someone asked me, what do you do? I could say, well, you know, I'm working with John Travolta. I'm working with, you know, Eddie Murphy, <laughs> with Nora Ephron. And that would be like, I, I just tell a story about who I thought I was. Mm. But like I said, sometimes there could be two or three months in between a movie. And if I went out then and somebody asked me, what do you do? It's like, well, I watched Oprah this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but do you want to know why I'm not wearing earrings? <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Just what just happened to my self-esteem. Right. So I started looking at this and seeing how self-esteem like isn't, I think what people usually refer to as self-esteem is, is their thinking. And that's what's going up and down. The quality of their thinking is what's going up and down. And because when I started asking, like I had clients in LA who, who were talking about their low self-esteem and I said, who told you that? And they go, well, all my therapists tell me I have low self-esteem. I was like, really? <laughs> I, I said, what, why do you think that is? And they go, well, you know, my life just isn't going the right way. And my girlfriend's got the cute boyfriend and my friend just got the great job and I don't get anything and it's not fair. And so I started realizing that what they were referring to as low self-esteem was actually a resentment that the world wasn't treating them right. But if you think about that, if I have a resentment, the world isn't treating me right. That, that, that kind of means I think I should be treated better. Yeah which is actually high self-esteem. I'm actually angry because you're not treating me right. That's not low self-esteem. That's actually like ego out of control. Like the world should treat me like a princess. <laughs> and I point that out to people and they go, no, they, they wouldn't want to talk to me. <laughs> that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> it's like, next. it's interesting. I was talking to somebody this morning and I was telling them, I did an intensive with a client and and it kind of that had come to come about from working with his son so and then usually when I work with kids I work with their parents and so then he had kind of said you know would you be willing to spend some time talking he was having some issues but he's actually quite a well-known individual which I had no idea of until we kind of got into the room and started talking and then and I still didn't know just from the name um so that's that was the introduction to our conversation was because that's the story that he's been carrying and you know that was defining him was who he was and then it was just kind of so it was it was interesting probably humbling for him and a little embarrassing for me 
So your book, let's talk about your book. Yeah. So, so it really is um, a story about a girl called Deborah. <clears throat> and so she had, so I, I wrote, I used the muggings as a beginning story that she has this experience. And then she starts to um, explore like other ideas of how, how we experience life. And on her journey, she, um, she starts to see that it, it, that we are th experiencing our thinking. And so her solution she comes up with first is positive thinking because clearly negative thinking got her into a lot of trouble. So let's try positive thinking. And I actually did that for a long time thinking that was the answer. Um, I call it the pink paint method now. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's rotten wood, but if you put, if you put pink paint on it, <laughs> then it looks pretty. Right. <laughs> and so that, that was the solution. And, um, and so then she, she, I discovers um, a few different other methods and techniques and, but there's always something missing. She's like searching for, for a real answer. And um, so, so then that's how the story continues. And then she, she comes across the principles um, towards the end and, and there is a happy ending, like, you know, cause in, in between um, the stories, like there's clients that she's working with and, and they, they kind of both together, discover these ideas and, and, and she sees really helps some other people get well, you know, sharing what the, the recovery that she'd had from, from these kind of experiences. And so writing the book was, um, you know, I, I'd um, been told several times that I should write a book. You know, some, some people have said to me, you should write about your Hollywood stories or you should write about, you know, the trauma, different things that have happened to you. So I, I put all, everything I had into this book and, and it was really, um, quite a wonderful experience writing it, editing and formatting and that stuff is quite something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not so much, but <laughs> yes, yeah, a full time job. Um, and so <clears throat> when I, when I finished writing the book, uh, I actually printed it out and offered it to a friend to, to read for some feedback. And the next morning I woke up with the idea for three more books. And it was such an incredible experience to feel that creativity just flow because I never thought of myself as a writer. I mean, I still find it a little bit hard um, <laughs> because my whole life I've been working with my hands and, and thank God I've been very successful with my hands and gotten a lot of compliments for the things I've done with my hands, my creativity. But I haven't written anything since I was in high school, which was like quite a few years ago. <laughs> and um, so I didn't even know if I could write. And in fact, I, um, for the English people, uh, listening, I, I failed my English O level four times, which is like the exam you take when you're 16, you know? So I got four Ds. So I was sent this message by, by school saying that you can't write, you don't write, that's not going to be your path. <laughs> so, so now to be thought of as an author is quite, uh, I, I, I find it funny because talk, we were talking earlier about stories we tell ourselves. So I told myself that I'm not academic and that I'm not a writer, but apparently that's not true. <laughs> so mm. I've written, I wrote this book and thank God it's, you know, being received really well. And so when I woke up with the idea for three or four more stories, um, it was uh, wonderful. Um, it was, it was actually amazing. So I'm really enjoying putting these ideas into novel form, into, into fiction and that way, it, I think it's introducing it to a whole new audience of people who would find it easier to write, read a story than they would maybe a textbook or an anecdotal book. 
um, and watching the characters develop and the characters um, discovering these ideas. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a great experience. It's kind of like semi, semi-fiction or something because there's so much truth in the story. Right, yeah. I mean, self-help fiction sounds a bit kind of cheesy, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> it does, but it kind of, it makes sense. Like you say, like there's so much... Um, when you can articulate something that might be difficult to understand from like maybe reading it in a textbook, but you can create a story around it that makes it a lot more, yeah. it's like metaphors, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been, I've been, I heard, um, maybe it was Michael Neal said metaphors are the language of the spirit. Mm. That was a really beautiful um, way to explain it. Yeah. Well, even when what came to me when you were talking about special effects is I've heard people say like, special effects when they're even talking about mind thought and consciousness you know mm-hmm. um so it's fascinating to me there's so many things in your world hana that what a journey i know and and i'm i'm kind of getting into a, a a new area right now where um like especially this course where you and i met with dr bill pettit is really seeing the connection with what happens to us physically yeah when 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 we get caught up in thinking yeah. And mind blowing. It is. And um, because I, I kind of, before we started the course, I kind of, because of my training, knew about the stress response system. And with working with a lot of um, younger girls, I see it all the time about how, I mean, I'm sure the listeners have heard of the fight or flight response. Yeah. And so what happens, you know, from, and obviously I'm not a doctor, so from my lay, my lay understanding is that um, when that, that stress response is activated, it sends all kinds of um, stress hormones into the body, cortisol and glucose and adrenaline, and all the things you need to escape from that burning building or away from you know, the tiger. And, um, and it lasts for about 20 minutes, and then um, it kind of dissolves, I guess, goes back into the system. And then we're, we're ready for another one of those experiences about 72 hours later. And that's how, you know, the source of the world, <laughs> the mind, whatever you want to call it, invented, you know, d- designed us to, to operate that way, which is an incredible system. But if you think about it, if you're sitting and worrying for two hours, instead of the 20 minutes, you're doing it for two hours, four hours, eight hours a day, every day that's going to have an effect on, on your physical body because all those chemicals are going to your body all the time. And, and I've read statistics where there's a lot, there's diabetes is on the rise right now, becoming an epidemic and stomach problems and all kinds of things. And it's, it's, and seeing that that's coming from thought. When I explain that to people and they can see how a panic attack, for example, you know, can, I mean, I've, I've worked with girls who've had panic attacks and if you ask them enough questions, you can see that it started with some distressed thinking, which probably pre- was preceded by some overthinking. And so you see this chain reaction that, that God forbid ends up with an ambulance and, you know, and ending up in the hospital and people thinking they're having heart attacks when really it was just, you know, their, their, their body's being dysregulated by, by this overthinking. And, and my own personal experience with that, I, the listeners can probably hear I'm a bit congested right now because it's allergy season here in Israel. And I've had allergies since I was five years old. 
And every like seasons, I can't breathe, you know, sneezing, the itchy eyes, you know, it's it's been horrendous all my life. I've had surgery. I've had, you know, my school bag was like a pharmacy. I've had homeopathy, neti pot, you name it, I've tried it. And so in the last, this, this season right now, which here in my, where I'm living started about a month ago, I thought, I suddenly thought, I wonder if my allergies are my immune system that's like gone into hyperactivity due to some story that went on in my head when I was a kid, maybe. And I have to tell you that I stopped sneezing. My eyes aren't itching. I'm not sneezing. I mean, I have a bit of congestion right now because I think maybe it went into an infection before I kind of got these ideas into my head. But after 50 years of, of like having chronic allergies, they're going away. It's incredible. Do you remember what that story was you told yourself when you were a kid? Um, I'm not sure. And I'm, I'm kind of debating whether it's even important to know because yeah. then I'm getting, getting into content. No, I, I didn't mean to like throw off your question, but I do know that when I, they started when I was about five years old. Mm. And at that time, my family was having some like difficulty. My older brother was going through a very tough, tough time. And being the youngest, I think I was kind of like, it's going to sound like self-pity, but I, was, I think I was kind of like pushed out the way because I was just the baby. Like, it's just what happens when yeah, you're yeah, the younger child. Right. When, you, when you're the youngest, you're like, like get out of the way. And uh, whilst my parents dealt with my, my older brother. And so I'm wondering if having like something physical happen was a way to get my mother's attention. Like, hey, remember me? I'm still here. You know? yeah. Coughing and sneezing and, and like needing to go to the doctor. So I'm wondering if that's, maybe what started it off and, and I, 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 I'm, this is something I'm researching and looking into now because I've definitely seen it with, um, with other areas, particularly back pain. Um, so as a result of all my injuries, I had chronic back pain for about 20 years. Um, I, I was temporarily paralyzed several times. I had to go to the emergency room, uh, back spasms, you know, pain off the charts. I, I, I was a teacher for about five years and I, I would walk around with a hot water bottle strapped to my back. You know, <laughs> I, I'd have to lie on the floor for days. I mean, like really, really agony um, in my shoulders and in my back. And um, when I um, came across the principles, I, I decided to do some training. So I actually went to do the, the One Thought Institute um, program in London with Aaron Turner. And, you know, it, it was, there was an expense obviously for the course and also flying from Jerusalem to, to London. I had to go three times was an added expense and I'm not working when I'm away, you know, on, yeah. on the train. So it was, it was quite an, an investment. So I actually looked around my budget to see if I could save money in, in any particular area. And I've been going to chiropractors for 20 years, you know, like at least once a month for, you know, just to keep myself, you know, thank God I haven't had any surgery and I haven't, you know, had to be in a wheelchair, but they've come, come close a few times, but chiropractors have kept me, you know, like, uh, moving. Yeah. So I've had a standing monthly chiropractic appointment for 20 years and more if I was having a, a you know, painful episode. So I thought, you know what, I haven't had any pain for a while. Maybe I'll just set aside the chiropractic appointments and I can always go and you know, I can call her up if, you know, if I get into any trouble. So I, I did the course with our interner and after the course had finished, I was telling someone, you know, I really haven't had any pain. In fact, I can't remember the last time I had an episode. In fact, it's probably been about two or three years now. I thought, hold, hold on a minute. That's how long I've been around the principles, right? <laughs> and I thought, this is interesting. 
And so the person I was talking to, she said to me, have you heard of Dr. Sarno? And I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Sarno, Dr. John Sarno. Anyway, he was a, uh, a rehabilitation um, medical doctor in a hospital in New York, I think New York University Hospital. Uh-huh. And he made this connection between back pain and stress. Um, there's lots of videos on, on, on YouTube about this. And so I, I, I looked up Dr. John Sarno, and he gave a medical explanation of what was actually happening, which is that when you're stressed, um, it affects your circulation. And if your blood isn't circulating properly, it's not going to be taking enough oxygen to your muscles. Hmm. And so when, when I was experiencing pain, it was real. It was agony. But it wasn't caused by the, the bone fractures and the herniated discs that I was told I had. It was actually caused by a lack of oxygen in the muscles. And it's the muscles then tense. That's what causes the pain. That's what would push my back out. And that's where that agony was coming from. And so Dr. Sino explains this and says, you know, that stress is causing that. And I, I could go in, I could do a whole hour talk on this now because this is my <laughs> subject. And but Dr. Sarno's answer is Freudian psychology. So oh, I was oh, like, yeah. I was like, okay, let's leave that over there. <laughs> leave the first part. Leave the second right. part. So I'm very grateful to him for the, the medical explanation. Mm-hmm. Put that together with my own experience of my back pain went away when I started un- really understanding how my human experience works. Isn't that interesting? The principles of relieved me of 20 years of back pain. Wow. And, and I didn't even have to go and read a book or watch a video to think, oh, okay, now I'm going to put that into action. It happened automatically. So I started reading more books about this because, you know, like I said, I love to read all these research <laughs> books. right? And there's one particular book um, by a man called Steve Ozanich, which was what he was one of Dr. Sarno's star patients. And he's got a book um, called The Great Pain Deception. And it's about two inches thick. So I ordered the book and I was, um, you know, it was a holiday here. And uh, so I spent two days reading this book, like all day, reading, 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 reading. Cause I, it's fascinating. I couldn't put it down. And I have to tell you, whilst I was reading the book, my back went out. I was bent. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I was bent sideways. I was in pain, my sciatica pain was shooting down my leg to my foot. It was real. It really hurt. And I laughed. I laughed because it was so funny to me that my back is hurting because I'm reading a book about back pain. (laughs) Wow. And I knew that it was coming from my thinking. So when the two days were over, when I finished, I had to put the, you know, finish the book and I put it down. I knew that I would straighten up and the pain would go away. And it did. It was, it was such an incredible experience. And, and so um, it's funny, like last weekend, I read another one of Dr. Sarno's books, which was much smaller and I had a little bit of pain. <laughs> like, okay, that makes sense. See, like, I think when you understand it, then you don't get frightened. I wasn't yeah. frightened. Whereas when my back used to go out before and I'd be in agony and I'd be lying on the floor and like screaming for ice packs and, you know, water bottles. And every time I, I kind of got temporarily paralyzed and I literally would lose the power in my legs. I could not move my legs. 
I would get terrified because I think, you know, maybe this is it. This time, I'm not going to get the feeling back in my legs. This time, I am going to end up in, in, the sur- in surgery. This time, I am going to end up in a wheelchair. And, and so that thinking would make me more stressed, which make my back hurt even more and spasm even more and more agony. And then I have to lie on the floor longer for it to pass. Whereas here I was now, because I understood it and I didn't take it seriously, it went away, you know, just went away. It's, this is book number three. <laughs> now, have you been in touch with, you know, um, John, and I'm trying to think of her name, in Breakthrough That, that's the name of their, um, they have done a lot of research uh, <clears throat> looking at the principles in relation to chronic fatigue syndrome and um, other fibromyalgia and some other issues. Oh, yeah. I'll, okay. I'll send you some links. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm really, because the, the fascinating thing is like, I thought my, my three principles practitioner career would take me down the path of helping people with trauma. And I'm still very interested and excited about doing that. <clears throat> but since I've come to all these realizations, um, just yesterday I had three new clients and they all had physical, really bad, painful physical conditions. Uh, one lady had eczema. Uh, a man had um, like stomach colitis type problems. And the other lady was a client I just was, you know, I booked about a month ago to meet with and she had to go to the bathroom like two times and I'm sorry to be graphic, but she was so stressed that that's what was, you know, like how it was manifesting, you know, physically. And so, you know, my heart went out to them because like me with my back pain or or my trauma, I want to focus on my body or focus on the problem, focus on on out here. And so I'm, now I'm seeing this, the connection to be able to help people and point them in the direction of, you know, it's coming from, from an innocent misunderstanding of thought and seeing, you know, how straight away that that can, you know, the, the, your circulation and your breathing can, can change in seconds. The same way that in seconds we can activate the stress response and, and get, you know, get into the fight or flight response it can happen in seconds. Thank God, you know, for us to, run from that burning building or, or lift a car off your, you know, your child. The, the reverse of that is also true, that with a new thought, your breathing can slow down. My shoulders just went down. You can yeah, relax. Actually, I know. Yeah, right? <laughs> relax. And instantly your body is going into, into recovery, which I think Dr. Bill was, was calling that the, the neuro, neuroscience of resilience, mm. neuro, neurobiology of resilience, I yeah. think he called it. Whereas your body is, your, your whole being is so made in such an incredible way that having that thought of, I'm actually going to be okay, I'm safe, you know, this isn't going to last, it's going to pass. Your body is already going into recovery and into healing, like with that story that we told about the, the accident. Yeah, that story was incredible. Which, which is like such, um, I'm, I'm getting very excited about being able to pass this on to people and because and, and back pain, like phys- physically suffering, I mean, obviously emotionally suffering is horrendous too, but when it's combined with then you've got, it's limiting your life so much that you can't go to work or you can't be with your family because of it. It's, um, you know, to offer people help with that is, I'm, I'm getting very excited about this. It's funny, my mom, it's not funny, but my mom was diagnosed with MS, um, gosh, like 12 years ago now, 11, 12 years ago, but they think it was a secondary onset of it. So they think that she's actually had it for much longer. And we've often had conversations about 
what I wonder if that would have impacted her life differently had she known. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, she's amazing, my mom. <laughs> Listen, Hannah, this has been a really lovely conversation, and I'm going to put things in the show notes of how people can get in touch with you. Is there anything else you want listeners to know before we end the conversation? No, I, 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 I'm, I'm really excited. We've, we've covered so many topics. It was like really, um, it was such a pleasure talking to you. It's, um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed myself. So, uh, yes, I, well. I really, yeah, I really look forward to hearing if anybody's got experience or, in, you know, interest in, in these ideas. I really look forward to hearing from people. Yeah, oh, definitely. Well, listen, Hannah, I will be seeing you on tomorrow's call. So thank you yes. very much for the conversation today. All right. Thank you so much. Wow, what a conversation that was. Hannah's life story is really interesting. I can't imagine suffering through trauma, not once, not twice, but three times. There was so much that came out during this conversation. I really could have talked to to Hannah for another hour or so, maybe longer. I'd love to have her back sometime. I love that she's interested in research. She's a very passionate person. Here are a few thought bomb takeaways. You are not your story. When severe trauma happens, it's easy to embrace the story and let it define you. It can be difficult to let it go. But when you do, it opens up the door to a whole new experience of life. We are all born with an innate system that regulates our body. It is also there as a personal alarm to tell us when we're experiencing thoughts that take us away from our well-being. This innate system is actually a gift. For Hana, this personal alarm shut things down after years of being stuck in her trauma and afraid to leave the house. It was, a, it, was, it was letting off a warning sign to her, and she paid attention to it, and her life changed because of that. Self-esteem is not hardwired or even constant. It's based on a story that we tell ourselves and others. It feels true. It feels real. However, accepting it as truth and allowing it to define you is what keeps you stuck. And finally, the connection between mind, brain, and body is fascinating and it can be life-changing when we start to pay attention to it. By gaining an understanding of the mind and how we operate as humans, we discover a way to tap into our well-being from an emotional and physical healing perspective. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really, really found that informative and the conversation very stimulating. Until next time, be well, be inspired, be you. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll share this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with Jessie Lynn, please check out the contact page on her website, jessielynnmcdonald.com. Also, we'd be beyond grateful if you would leave us a review. Join us next time for another edition of the CPR of Life.